Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College online journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. This is Ryan McKennell. I am the U.S. Agency for International Development Advisor to the War College. So one of the main focuses of professional military education reflects the day-to-day work of policymakers in the National Security Council and the departments and agencies of the federal government. That is, how to make the so-called three Ds of foreign policy, defense, diplomacy, and development work effectively in response to complex international challenges. No region of the world exemplifies those challenges more than Africa. That's why I feel like I have the pleasure today to speak with a fellow Army War College graduate who's a senior foreign service officer from the Department of State, who currently serves alongside our colleagues in uniform at the Geographic Combat Command, whose area of responsibility is Africa. Sir, could you introduce yourself? I'm uh, Alex Lascaris. I'm the uh, deputy to the commander for civil military relations at U.S. Africa Command. Ambassador Lascaris, thank you so much for uh, joining us here for oh, this Thanks podcast. for having me. Yeah. So why, what brings you to Carlisle? Well, I like professional military education. Uh, you know, I graduated from the distance learning program here, the master's in strategic studies about six years ago. And what stayed with me is this is a laboratory for uh, the clinical study of success and more importantly, failure. Mm. Uh, and also what stayed with me is this is one of the few times as military or a state department, we can get together in an academic setting uh, free of taboo. I see. And so I, I think it's a real useful venue for the for the free exchange of, of controversial ideas. Okay. Well, uh, could you talk a little bit more about your role in AFRICOM and maybe maybe tie it into that last piece? Um, you know, how do you think that uh, War College could be useful to, to the, command, the command? Well, first of all, any civilian working in a geographic combatant command or any command would benefit from the exposure to the people of the military and the institutions of the military and, more importantly, the thought processes of the military. At the same time, you know we've we've begun to define to define uh, diversity in important terms of gender, ethnicity, handicap status, or, or sexual orientation. But the real the other diversity is intellectual diversity. Mm-hmm. And so, if you have an organization, whether it's the State Department, AID, or the U.S. military, that is monolithic, uh, you have no intellectual diversity. So, my role at the command reflects the founding architecture, which is we need to be a different kind of command. Mm-hmm. a hybrid between hard and soft power. And to make that real, we're going to put non-DOD civilians at every level of the staff embedded in the staff. So, so my job is, is one of two deputy commanders. And that's a unique setup because uh, we're the only geographic combatant command that has a civilian deputy operating as peer to a military deputy. Now, because of the law, I can't command forces. So my role is, frankly, advisory as opposed to um, uh, uh, operational. But my job is to is to bring a little bit of African knowledge uh, and the military. Uh, the U.S. military is still relatively new to the African continent, so they don't have the cadre of German experts or Soviet experts or Korea experts or Iraq or Afghan experts. Uh, so part of the job is just to be the person who knows some of the historical cultural background uh, of the of these issues. But part of it is to is to marry up the civilian side. Uh, of national power to the military side. And and frankly, the great irony, the command is desperate for civilian leadership uh, of the strategic issues we face. And then part of that is understanding 
okay, how does the military support the broader diplomatic uh, strategy of the United States? Well, I know that uh, engagement, civil military engagement, is core to your role, and it's part of your part of your uh, your uh, title. Um, and I, I wanted to ask you if you could give some examples of what you do in terms of civil military engagement, either with the command or with some of our African partners. Well, let's take the last uh, three weeks uh, before I came here. So two weeks ago, I was in Khartoum. I was in Sudan, with as you know, with which we've had a difficult relationship. Uh, for many years over a series of, of very serious issues. And to try to uh, come up with a roadmap for, for regularizing this relationship, uh, the, the interagency community came up with a, with a five-track plan for engagement with Sudan. Two of those tracks have very strong military uh, components, and two of those tracks fall very squarely under AFRICOM's uh, uh, leadership. So the, so the goal is to go out to Sudan and to help the diplomacy uh, on the implementation of this five-track plan, but that's to close the that's the to close the book on one chapter in our relations with Sudan. At the same time, build for the future. So, you know, the, our relationship with Sudan has been dominated for years by the question of South Sudan mm -hmm. and the question of the the Lord's Resistance Army. Uh, you know, the LRA side, we've transitioned that mission to a steady state. Uh, South Sudan has gone its own way, uh, tragically and 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 with extreme violence. But right now. You know, we're telling the South Sudanese, you just need to stay out of this. Don't fuel the conflict uh, and do your best to help facilitate humanitarian access, humanitarian relief, and, and eventually, hopefully, peace building. But at the same time, uh, all of a sudden, we have this Libya crisis, mm -hmm. uh, which is spitting migrants into the Mediterranean, which is, has served as a host for uh, terrorist organizations intent on attacking us and our European partners. Well, Sudan uh, borders Libya. And one of the routes for weapons, mercenaries, illegal migrants into Libya goes from the Red Sea uh, through Sudan. So lacking engagement, mm -hmm. we are not able to talk about common interests and common threats. So I went to Khartoum with the goal of you know, uh, focusing on the implementation of the five-track plan, but also saying you know, what has defined our relationship for the last four or five years is necessary but insufficient. Yeah. Because what's new is, hey, we have a common threat, we have a common interest in Libya, and engagement is the means by which we address that threat uh, together. So last week I was in Senegal. I, went, I flew to Dakar for a conference uh, co-hosted with the African Union and our Office of Legal Counsel on the question of the sexual exploitation and abuse by peacekeepers. Yeah. Now, this is a very important human rights issue. It's a very important humanitarian issue, law enforcement issue. It's also something that is disgusting, that peacekeepers who are being deployed and paid and trained to protect civilians have become predators. Um, but that doesn't rise to my strategic level. Mm -hmm. uh, there are other people who are pointing out, hey, we need legal systems, we need uh, the ability to prosecute offenders, to compensate victims, to protect victims. Uh, but the strategic level is this is a threat to peacekeeping. Mm -hmm. This is a strategic threat to our ability to fund and deploy African peacekeeping contingents supporting African diplomacy and African crises. So I did not go out there to talk about sexual ethics. I, I, that's not a, a useful conversation in that form. I went out there to say, listen, uh, you have to get a handle on this sure. because if you don't, our mutual ability to deploy you into the Central African Republic, the DRC, et cetera, is severely compromised. So the engagement there is designed as a sort of fire brigade, you know, put the fire out before it consumes the house. Sure. 
Well, we've had a few meetings here today in Carlisle, and one of the one of the themes that kind of comes out, which I think is consistent with the War College experience, is looking at the strategic aspect of a problem versus the tactical aspects. Could you talk a little bit about how you try to bring what What are your strategies, I guess, for bringing <laughs> the command to look at things from a strategic level, you know, both at the staff level and and maybe some of the other folks that you work on, instead of just focusing on the tactics. You know, going back to my war college experience, uh, you know, the the propaganda of the institution was we're preparing you for, for strategic leadership. Um, I didn't realize how hard that was. Hmm. And particularly, you know, for our military colleagues who are coming out of very stovepipe career paths where, uh, you know, I'm an infantry officer, so I've commanded an infantry company, I've commanded a battalion, I've been an S3, I've been to the infantry school, uh, and your job is the accumulation of knowledge as you advance. And so a, a division commander uh, of an infantry division has probably done every job in that division or has some exposure to it during his or her career. Sure. And then all of a sudden, go joint and go into this part of the world that you know nothing about. And all of a sudden, uh, command authority is no longer the currency of the realm, it's influence. Mm -hmm. So it's so you've grown up in a system that, that preaches uh, north-south bureaucratic relationships. Who, who works for you? Who, for whom do you work? Who can order you? And who can you order? And all of a sudden, we're putting you in a joint interagency, multinational environment where nobody has to do a single thing you say because of your rank or your position. And so the, it's a question of collaboration, uh, cooperation uh, across bureaucratic cultures and across national cultures. And frankly, I think it's sometimes it's harder across bureaucratic cultures. So that, that's the first sort of mentality, which is I no longer have command authority uh, as the tool by which I can uh, impose my indomitable will uh, on any given situation. But the second is you have a fundamental choice to make. Do you graduate to strategic leadership or do you do graduate level tactics? Hmm. Yeah. Um, and too many people, I think, opt for let's do graduate level tactics. So you know, as we're looking at various conflicts in the African continent, there is a kinetic element uh, to many of them. So in Libya, fighting ISIS, there is you know, U.S. forces in partnership with, with Libyan forces going after <coughs> high-value targets. In Somalia, it's the same thing. But those are exceptions. The, in general, our decisive effort in Africa is building partner capacity, yeah. security force assistance, um, which is not what we're trying to do. And so if you have someone who has risen to the general officer ranks on the basis of his or her performance, uh, on the battlefield mm -hmm. or leading combat units, um, those same qualities don't help if the decisive effort is security force assistance or building partner capacity. So it requires a, a change of mindsets. Now at the same time, uh, you know, State Department, um, we have to change as well. And you know, General Walthauser, the commander, likes to say we should always have an action bias. Okay. And my response is, General, where I come from bureaucratically and culturally is we should always do nothing until we know what the best course of action is. And we're both right. Mm -hmm. And the, the joy of the job is the dialectic, the, the discussion. Yeah, I think the military needs to make the State Department and AID a little more action-oriented. Uh, I think AID and state need to make the military a little more contemplative at times. And if you have the personal relationships right, which, right. which thankfully I think we do, it becomes fun. It becomes, okay, 
uh, general, sometimes you have to have the courage just to do nothing. Yeah. And ambassador, sometimes you have to have the courage to you know, stop gazing at your navel uh, and do something. So I think that's, that's the important interplay uh, at, this, at the strategic level between state and civilian, uh, between civilians and military. And so you're a war college graduate. You served in northern Iraq and had a lot of exposure with the military at that time. What, what have you personally learned? When you look back on, on AFRICOM, your, your, your experience with the Africa Command, what, what have you taken away from it? You know, it's interesting. Um, I work in a command staff primarily with people who have never worked in Africa before and likely won't. So it's most, mostly it's people doing a joint assignment, uh, go, go serve at AFRICOM and then go back to or go on to something else. Um, and that's fine. Uh, that, that's the, there's nothing objectionable about that. But what I find very useful is, hey, did you serve in Iraq and Afghanistan? Yeah, yeah, I did like four tours. Okay, change the names, change the cuisine, um, but ask some of the basic questions about legitimacy, uh, about the behavior of security services vis-a-vis -vis civilians, about the toxic role of corruption mm -hmm. uh, in our partners, and just apply that to the African context. And so when, when we're debating courses of action at AFRICOM, very often it's an abstraction. Okay, we want to talk about doing something in Niger. Well, no one has been to Niger before. No one knows anything about it. But I say, okay, who here tried something similar in Iraq or Afghanistan? You know, nine or ten of the hands go up. Okay. Did it work? No. All right. Well, you know, chances are if it didn't work in Iraq or Afghanistan, <laughs> let's not try it uh, in Niger. So I find, and this is a source of dispute with a lot of my Africanist colleagues. You know, a lot of my Africanist colleagues are saying, you know, I wish people would, would stop talking about their Iraq-Afghan experience. I have the exact opposite uh, view, which is, guys, bring your Iraq-Afghan experience to Africa and be willing to accept uh, that, in many respects, what you did failed. Mm. Uh, and don't repeat those failures. Wow. Yeah, no, I have to say, among my colleagues who focus on Africa, you hear that a lot, that people are still in the Iraq and Afghanistan mindset. Africa is not. But I think um, in terms of understanding what we can and can't do in these societies really makes a lot of sense. Could we could we shift a little bit to sort of the changing the 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 effects of the change in the U.S. administration toward Africa? So um, you know, thinking about U.S. security policy, there are, you, you you've served under two presidents with very different approaches to foreign policy. What are some of the enduring elements of our diplomatic and security relationships in Africa, and what do you what do you also think is likely to change under the new administration? You know, I've, I've been working in the Africa Bureau off and on since uh, 91, uh, and what is remarkable is how little change there is. Mm -hmm. uh, so Africa policy tends to be, uh, tends to rest on long-term consensus um, that I think will survive intact uh, this administration. A, a lot of the key Africa figures of this administration have yet to take their place, so we, we don't have an Assistant Secretary of State uh, for African Affairs. We now just have a... Um, a senior White House person for Africa. Mm -hmm. We don't have an assistant administrator yet uh, for AID. Uh, we don't have a DASD for Africa yet in, um, in OSD. So to a certain extent, it, the answer is we'll see. Um, but I think there are a couple, a couple changes coming uh, that I've seen so far. One is I think we're moving to a transactional form of assistance. Uh, and I think that's regrettable because I, as I look back at the great success stories of African military assistance. Mm -hmm. it, to me, the militaries that we have built on a non-transactional basis, meaning there's no quid pro quo, we're investing in the Senegalese military over 40 years because we want a long-term partner. You know, 40 years later, you have 
one of the best militaries on the continent and one of a handful of militaries that I can say can be a strategic partner of the United States. And it's not based on a supplicant uh, donor relationship. It's based on a commonality of interests and of values. Uh, you know, great difference in capabilities, but that's that. But we have a difference in capabilities with every military in the world. Right. Um, so this moving to a transactional, well, we're going to do this in return for that, uh, I think is short-sighted. And I think it will uh, undermine the effectiveness of the, some of the long-term programs that we've been trying to do uh, for decades. You know, the other thing that uh, concerned us coming in, or concerned me as the new administration came in, is, you know, we have a, a large number of conflicts in Africa that have chameleon qualities, that they tend to blend into the international environment of the day. Yeah. Uh, and so I'm old enough to remember the Cold War in Africa, where all of these local conflicts in search of external sponsors portrayed themselves as one thing or another to get our interest. And so sure. we fought proxy wars with the Soviet Union in Angola, where I served for two years in the aftermath. And um, it was based on it was based on bad analysis, and it was based on our African partners um, playing to our prejudices and portraying their conflicts as something other than resource struggles between uh, between armed elites. Uh, fast forward 25 years, and instead of communism, it's Islamism, mm -hmm. uh, or it's extremism. Yeah. And the, the analytical challenge is, you know, are these local conflicts or are these uh, ex exogenous? Uh, and, and of course, the answer is a little bit of both. So the African goal is, to, is if there are local conflicts, do our best to keep them that way yeah. and work with partners to, to contain and then degrade and defeat uh, over time. So, so coming in, you know, I think there were two concerns. One was disengagement. You know, we don't care about these. We have no interests at stake. Uh, why are we wasting our money, pouring money down a black hole, uh, et cetera? The other was militarization, Americanization of indigenous conflicts. Uh, mercifully, I think the, the, the incoming administration, you know, in my case led by Secretary Mattis and the Chairman, General Waldhauser, have cast a very clinical eye at these conflicts and said they have some exogenous elements, but these are largely internal conflicts to be managed through security force assistance. Or I like to say that we are a preposition-based command. We work by, with, and through uh, our partners. Sure. Uh, so I think there's been a firewall between the Americanization and the militarization uh, of our response. Um, and you know, and our, our tendency is, uh, if you want something done, do it yourself. And you know, if our partners are less than perfect, you know, to heck with it, we'll do it ourselves. And that's a trap, and we fall for it every time. But I think in Africa, we're doing a good job of, of not falling for it and accepting that a, a local solution that has local legitimacy that isn't as good as we think we could do it is better than us taking ownership uh, of these issues. Sure. Well, uh, we're just a few weeks shy, actually, of the 10-year anniversary of AFRICOM. And I was wondering if you could, how do you, how do you think all this will play out over the next 10 years? You know, it's funny, because we're a new organization, people think of us in terms of milestones. And no one has this conversation about PACOM. Hey, PACOM, you're at 75 years. Uh, you know, reflect back on 75 years of PACOM. Uh, that, that's the price you pay for being for being the new kid on the block. Um, you know, Africom, Africom was had a difficult birth. Uh, it was socialized badly to the Africans. It was sort of dropped on them as as a as a fait accompli, uh, and it was never really made clear what its intent was or why was the United States doing this. And no one accepted at face value the argument that this was a pretty simple bureaucratic uh, realignment. You know, those of us who who entered the Foreign Service in the 90s, as, as did you. Remember that UCOM had you know, West, North, and Central Africa. Uh, CENTCOM had the Horn. 
and PACOM had Madagascar. Right. And um, that didn't make sense from a, from a, from a bureaucratic uh, standpoint. And there's 53 countries um, of varying levels of interest to the United States probably required uh, the consolidation into, into, a, into an entity. Whether it's a four-star combatant command or not, that, that's, yeah, that, that's a, uh, an internal task organization question. But getting all of Africa under one single uh, bureaucratic entity, I think, was, was overdue and, and important. And allowing us to blur the distinction between, you know, that state and aid have between the Maghreb and the rest of Africa. Yeah. So particularly, you know, we're very heavily involved in the crises in the northern Sahel. Uh, and you can't do that unless you've got the Maghrebis and the Sahelians at the table. And, until, and frankly, that's easier than getting NEA and AF uh, <laughs> around the table. So I, I think the other accomplishment of AFRICOM has been to, to demystify the institution and explain to the Africans that this is the U.S. military that you have known um, for a long time and it is unchanged and it's still committed to security force assistance and building partner capacity. And, and but the the sort of AFRICOM was never conceived to be a war fighting command. It was yeah. it was conceived to be a soft power uh, hybrid command. Uh, and then history intruded. And so the 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 the, the, the Libya uh, conflict came about. And okay, who's going to manage this? Well, hey, AFRICOM, you you do this. So every day I see this dramatic tension played out. You know, are we soft power based command or are we a war fighting command? Yeah. And the answer is yes. Um, and, you know, the pendulum is always going to swing. And, you know, so I, speaking of the new administration, one of the things I do, frankly, just because I want to have some contact with Germany, the, the country where I work and sometimes live between trips, so I speak at local German universities. Um, and German students and German publics are very concerned about the, the rhetoric and the actions uh, of this administration. And they see it as, uh, most of them see it as, as objectionable. And my response to them is, you know, you're seeing the American democratic pendulum in action. And you, can, you have a choice with a pendulum of how you define uh, the reality. You can define it by the extremities of, of left-right movement, or you can define it as the unerring return to the center. Mm -hmm. um, and I, so my point to them is, look, every new, every new administration takes office, particularly after eight years uh, in exile in the Bush. And the, the ideology of the campaign trail, the ideology of exile, um, gives way to the realities of, of governance. And so I liken it to a successful African uh, rural insurgency. It's the dog that catches up to the car it's been chasing. <laughs> and what do you do? Right. Uh, so uh, just a couple more questions. I want to ask you a little bit about China's role in Africa. Um, the last time that you were in Carlisle, you spoke in a way that was a lot more nuanced than we tend to hear about um, the sort of rivalry between China and the United States and, and how that plays out in Africa. So could you elaborate a little bit on that? Oh, yeah. We're, we're Americans. We're capitalists. We believe in competition. So we are in commercial competition with China and Africa, but we're in commercial competition with the UK and France and the Netherlands and Belgium and, and Italy. So commercial competition for market shares, for access to resources, um, that's fine. That, that's that's a, a reality. Um, you know, what we say in the command that, that China is deeply invested in Africa. Uh, they're doing things that no one else is doing. So in the year and a half I've been there, they've rehabbed two rail lines, one from the port of Mombasa, the biggest port in East Africa, to Nairobi, the biggest city in East Africa, uh, 500 miles, 3,000 foot elevation gain. The second is from the port of Djibouti uh, to Addis Ababa. Same distance, 8,000 feet in elevation gain. 
the one the the the, the avenue for all of Ethiopia's commerce with the outside world. Um, no one else is bringing that kind of money uh, to the table. No one else is investing in that kind of infrastructure. So what is China doing? They're building ports, roads, railways, electricity grids, uh, investing in large-scale uh, extractive industries, and large-scale large commercial agriculture. Um, what do all of those things require, above all else? Stability. Yeah. I mean, if you've got a mine 300 miles from a port connected by a road or a railway line, uh, you need stability along that entire uh, corridor, if, or else your, your economic enterprise uh, will fail. So the Chinese are partners uh, in a shared, we have a shared interest, a shared stake uh, in stability. Now, what we have is a very different methodology for getting to it, uh, and the Chinese are very critical of, our, of us. They say this American fixation on, on democratic development is inherently unstable, and authoritarian governments provide the stability that, that economies need to, um, uh, to, to thrive. That's a philosophical difference. I th obviously think we're right and they're wrong, but I recognize that their that their opinion does have some some at least theoretical validity. Uh, but the other thing we argue about is is corruption. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the uh, business model that relies on the ability to uh, pollute the environment, to abuse workers, uh, to pay off uh, the bureaucrats who make the, the basic decisions. Um, has to change. And so the goal is not to drive the Chinese out of Africa. That, first of all, that's nonsensical because they're there in far greater value and numbers than we are. The goal is to get them to work up to the same uh, OECD standard. And, you know, I, I'm always struck by historical irony. And a lot of the Chinese at, at the macro level are very happy to see the Chinese investments in infrastructure, commercial mining. But where you're seeing some resentment is when the Chinese workers who remain after the projects are done go into business and compete with small-scale African entrepreneurs. And so the Africans are used to multinationals and the oil sector, the mining sector coming in, and they realize they can't replicate that. Yeah. But I had the chief of defense of the Lesotho Defense Force in my office, and he was complaining that in his village in rural Lesotho, uh, Chinese workers who were brought to do this Highlands Water Project stayed behind and are now selling fat cakes in his village. And fat cakes was like a donut, except it's yeah. savory and it's cheap food for the masses. And he, that bothered him more than a Chinese, you know, Three Gorges building dabs in his country. And I said, yeah, you gotta understand that um, the Union Pacific Railway imported Chinese workers into the American West in the 19th century. And when, they, when, that, when the work was done, they stayed, and th that became the backbone of a very successful uh, American community uh, rooted in, in, in uh, uh, China. Yeah. And so you have the same thing in East Africa with the Indians who were brought to build the railroads. Well, they stayed and they became a very successful mercantile uh, community that, yes. that contributes to wealth. Uh, so that's, but that, that's, that's harder for Africans, I think, to process than a giant company building a, a major infrastructure project. Sure. Okay, so finally, um, I, it, it's my observation that more and more national security professionals, both on the civilian side and the military side, seem to be interested in Africa these days. Uh, or else they find their work uh, involving African partners more often. So what advice would you have for those officers as they try to make sense of the continent's complexities, as someone who's spent a lot of time uh, and uh, intellect on Africa over the years? Um, you know, to take the, the skills that you would use in serving in a foreign country, whether it's Germany in the 80s or you know, Iraq or Afghanistan uh, in, in more recent times, and apply them to Africa. I mean, uh, to go into a country without knowing anything about it, without speaking the language, 
without understanding the culture. I mean, as a, a tradecraft matter, you know, USAID or the state would, would discourage that kind of thing. So, so, the, so the, uh, to me, the first step is if you're going to make a commitment to an African assignment or part of a career or all of a career uh, in Africa, I mean, the, what's the spade work? Well, the spade work is language, uh, culture, history. Again, the, the, you know, what, what do foreign service officers do? I mean, what's the role of a diplomat? We persuade foreigners to do stuff. Yeah. Right. How do you persuade a foreigner to do stuff? To do something? Uh, the best way to do it is, is demonstrate some empathy, uh, some knowledge. Um, so I, I think you start with a, a basis of historical, cultural, uh, language awareness that you can then translate into uh, a policy approach that has a higher chance of success. Excellent. Well, thank you. Well, That's, thank you. It's been a wonderful uh, conversation. Thanks a lot for your Likewise. time. Thank you. Okay. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Department of the Army, Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.